0: Good evening, listener, and welcome to Mr. Spike's Bedtime Stories. I do hope you are sitting comfortably. You are? Very good. Then I shall begin tonight's tale. The Color Out of Space by H.P. Lovecraft Part 1 West of Arkham the hills rise wild, and there are valleys with deep woods that no axe has ever cut. There are deep, narrow glens where the trees slope fantastically, and where thin brooklets trickle without ever having caught the glint of sunlight. On the gentle slopes there are farms, ancient and rocky, with squat, moss-coated cottages brooding eternally over old New England secrets in the lee of great ledges. But these are all vacant now the wide chimneys crumbling and the shingled sides bulging perilously beneath low gambrel roofs the old folk have gone away and foreigners do not like to live there french canadians have tried it italians have tried it and the poles have come and departed it is not because of anything that can be seen or heard or handled but because of something that is imagined The place is not good for imagination, and does not bring restful dreams at night. It must be this which keeps the foreigners away, for old Amy Pearce has never told them of anything he recalls from the strange days. Amy, whose head has been a little queer for years, is the only one who still remains, or who ever talks of the strange days, and he dares to do this because his house is so near the open fields and the travelled roads around Arkham. There was once a road over the hills and through the valleys, that ran straight where the blasted heath is now. But people ceased to use it, and a new road was laid curving far toward the south. Traces of the old one can still be found amidst the weeds of a returning wilderness, and some of them will doubtless linger even when half the hollows are flooded for the new reservoir. Then the dark woods will be cut down, And the blasted heath will slumber far below blue waters whose surface will mirror the sky and ripple in the sun and the secrets of the strange days will be one with the deep secrets one with the hidden law of old ocean and all the mystery of primal earth when i went into the hills and vales to survey for the new reservoir they told me the place was evil they told me this in arkham AND BECAUSE THAT IS A VERY OLD TOWN FULL OF WITCH LEGENDS, I THOUGHT THE EVIL MUST BE SOMETHING WHICH GRANDAMS HAD WHISPERED TO CHILDREN THROUGH CENTURIES. THE NAME BLASTED HEATH SEEMED TO ME VERY ODD AND THEATRICAL, AND I WONDERED HOW IT HAD COME INTO THE FOLKLORE OF A PURITAN PEOPLE. THEN I SAW THAT DARK WESTWARD TANGLE OF GLENS AND SLOPES FOR MYSELF, AND CEASED TO WONDER AT ANYTHING BESIDE ITS OWN ELDER MYSTERY. It was morning when I saw it, but shadow lurked always there. The trees grew too thickly, and their trunks were too big for any healthy New England wood. There was too much silence in the dim alleys between them, and the floor was too soft with the dank moss and mattings of infinite years of decay. In the open spaces, mostly along the line of the old road, there were little hillside farms— sometimes with all the buildings standing, sometimes with only one or two, and sometimes with only a lone chimney or fast-filling cellar. Weeds and briars reigned, and furtive wild things rustled in the undergrowth. Upon everything was a haze of restlessness and oppression, a touch of the unreal and the grotesque, as if some vital element of perspective or chiaroscuro were awry. I did not wonder that the foreigners would not stay, for this was no region to sleep in. It was too much like a landscape of Salvator Rosa, too much like some forbidden woodcut in a tale of terror. But even all this was not so bad as the blasted heath. I knew it the moment I came upon it at the bottom of a spacious valley, for no other name could fit such a thing, or any other thing fit such a name. It was as if the poet had coined the phrase from having seen this one particular region. It must, I thought as I viewed it, be the outcome of a fire. But why had nothing new ever grown over these five acres of grey desolation that sprawled open to the sky like a great spot eaten by acid in the woods and fields? It lay largely to the north of the ancient road-line, but encroached a little on the other side. I felt an odd reluctance about approaching— and did so at last only because my business took me through and past it. There was no vegetation of any kind on that broad expanse, but only a fine grey dust or ash which no wind seemed ever to blow about. The trees near it were sickly and stunted, and many dead trunks stood or lay rotting at the rim. As I walked hurriedly by I saw the tumbled bricks and stones of an old chimney and cellar on my right and the yawning black moor of an abandoned well whose stagnant vapours played strange tricks with the hues of the sunlight. Even the long, dark woodland climb beyond seemed welcome in contrast, and I marvelled no more at the frightened whispers of Arkham people. There had been no house or ruin near, even in the old days the place must have been lonely and remote, and at twilight, dreading to repass that ominous spot, I walked circuitously back to the town by the curious road on the south. I vaguely wished some clouds would gather, for an odd timidity about the deep skyey voids above had crept into my soul. In the evening I asked old people in Arkham about the blasted heath, and what was meant by that phrase, strange days, which so many evasively muttered. I could not, however, get any good answers, except that all the mystery was much more recent than I had dreamed, It was not a matter of old legendary at all, but something within the lifetime of those who spoke. It had happened in the eighties, and a family had disappeared or was killed. Speakers would not be exact, and because they all told me to pay no attention to old Ammy Pierce's crazy tales, I sought him out the next morning, having heard that he lived alone in the ancient tottering cottage, where the trees first begin to get very thick. It was a fearsomely ancient place, and had begun to exude the faint miasmal odour which clings about houses that have stood too long. Only with persistent knocking could I rouse the aged man, and when he shuffled timidly to the door I could tell he was not glad to see me. He was not so feeble as I had expected, but his eyes drooped in a curious way, and his unkempt clothing and white beard made him seem very worn and dismal. Not knowing just how best he could be launched on his tails, I feigned a matter of business, told him of my surveying, and asked vague questions about the district. He was far brighter and more educated than I had been led to think, and before I knew it had grasped quite as much of the subject as any man I had talked with in Arkham. He was not like other rustics I had known in the sections where reservoirs were to be. From him there were no protests, at the miles of old wood and farmland to be blotted out— though perhaps there would have been had not his home lain outside the bounds of the future lake. Relief was all that he showed, relief at the doom of the dark ancient valleys through which he had roamed all his life. They were better under water now, better under water since the strange days. And with this opening his husky voice sank low while his body leaned forward and his right forefinger began to point shakily and impressively. It was then that I heard the story, and as the rambling voice scraped and whispered on, I shivered again and again, spite the summer day. Often I had to recall the speaker from ramblings, piece out scientific points which he knew only by a fading parrot memory of Professor's talk, or bridge over gaps where his sense of logic and continuity broke down. When he was done, I did not wonder that his mind had snapped a trifle or that the folk of Arkham would not speak much of the blasted heath. I hurried back before sunset to my hotel, unwilling to have the stars come out above me in the open, and the next day returned to Boston to give up my position. I could not go into that dim chaos of old forest and slope again, or face another time that grey, blasted heath, with the black well yawned deep beside the tumbled brick and stones. The reservoir will soon be built now, and all those elder secrets will be safe for ever under watery fathoms. But even then, I do not believe I would like to visit that country by night, at least not when the sinister stars are out. And nothing could bribe me to drink the new city water of Arkham. It all began, Amy said, with the meteorite. Before that time there had been no wild legends at all since the witch trials. And even then, these western woods were not feared half so much as the small island in the Miskatonic, where the devil held court beside a curious lone altar older than the Indians. These were not haunted woods, and their fantastic dusk was never terrible till the strange days. Then there had come that white noontide cloud, that string of explosions in the air, and that pillar of smoke from the valley far in the wood and by night all Arkham had heard of the great rock that fell out of the sky, and bedded itself in the ground beside the well at the Nahum gardener place. That was the house which had stood where the blasted heath was to come, the trim, white Nahum gardener house amidst its fertile gardens and orchards. Nahum had come to town to tell people about the stone, and dropped in at Amy Pierce's on the way. Amy was forty then, and all the queer things were fixed very strongly in his mind. He and his wife had gone with the three professors from Miskatonic University, who hastened out the next morning to see the weird visitor from unknown stellar space, and had wondered why Nahum had called it so large the day before. It had shrunk, Nahum said, as he pointed out the big brownish mound above the ripped earth, and charred grass near the archaic well-sweep in his front yard. But the wise men answered that stones do not shrink. Its heat lingered persistently, and Naam declared it had glowed faintly in the night. The professors tried it with a geologist's hammer, and found it was oddly soft. It was, in truth, so soft as to be almost plastic, and they gouged rather than chipped a specimen to take back to the college for testing. They took it in an old pail borrowed from Nahum's kitchen, for even the small piece refused to grow cool. On the trip back they stopped at Amy's to rest, and seemed thoughtful, when Mrs. Pierce remarked that the fragment was growing smaller, and burning the bottom of the pail. Truly it was not large, but perhaps they had taken less than they thought. The day after that, all this was in the June of 82, the professors had trooped out again in a great excitement. As they passed Amy's, they told him what queer things the specimen had done, and how it had faded wholly away when they put it in a glass beaker. The beaker had gone too, and the wise men talked of the strange stone's affinity for silicon. It had acted quite unbelievably in that well-ordered laboratory, doing nothing at all and showing no occluded gases when heated on charcoal, being wholly negative in the borax bead, and soon proving itself absolutely non-volatile at any producible temperature, including that of the oxyhydrogen blowpipe. On an anvil it appeared highly malleable, and in the dark its luminosity was very marked. Stubbornly refusing to grow cool, it soon had the college in a state of real excitement, and when, upon heating before the spectroscope, it displayed shining bands unlike any known colours of the normal spectrum, there was much breathless talk of new elements, bizarre optical properties, and other things which puzzled men of science are wont to say when faced by the unknown." Hot as it was, they tested it in a crucible with all the proper reagents. Water did nothing. Hydrochloric acid was the same. Nitric acid and even aqua regia merely hissed and spattered against its torrid invulnerability. Amy had difficulty in recalling all these things, but recognised some solvents as I mentioned them in the usual order of use. There were ammonia and caustic soda, alcohol and ether, nauseous carbon disulfide and a dozen others, but although the weight grew steadily less as time passed, and the fragments seemed to be slightly cooling, there was no change in the solvents to show that they had attacked the substance at all. It was a metal, though, beyond a doubt. It was magnetic, for one thing, and after its immersion in the acid solvents, there seemed to be faint traces of the Widman-Staten figures found on meteoric iron. When the cooling had grown very considerable, the testing was carried on in glass, and it was in a glass beaker that they left all the chips made of the original fragment during the work. The next morning both chips and beaker were gone without a trace, and only a charred spot marked the place on the wooden shelf where they had been. All this the professors told Ammi as they paused at his door, and once more he went with them to see the stony messenger from the stars, though this time his wife did not accompany him. It had now most certainly shrunk, and even the sober professors could not doubt the truth of what they saw. All around the dwindling brown lump near the well was a vacant space, except where the earth had caved in, and whereas it had been a good seven feet across the day before, it was now scarcely five. It was still hot, and the sages studied its surface curiously as they detached another and larger piece with hammer and chisel. They gouged deeply this time, and as they pried away the smaller mass, they saw that the core of the thing was not quite homogeneous. They had uncovered what seemed to be the side of a large coloured globule embedded in the substance. The colour, which resembled some of the bands in the meteor's strange spectrum, was almost impossible to describe, and it was only by analogy that they called it colour at all. Its texture was glossy, and upon tapping it appeared to promise both brittleness and hollowness. One of the professors gave it a smart blow with a hammer, and it burst with a nervous little pop. Nothing was emitted, and all trace of the thing vanished with the puncturing. It left behind a hollow spherical space about three inches across, and all thought it probable that others would be discovered as the enclosing substance wasted away. Conjecture was vain— So, after a futile attempt to find additional globules by drilling, the seekers left again with their new specimen, which proved, however, as baffling in the laboratory as its predecessor. Aside from being almost plastic, having heat, magnetism, and slight luminosity, cooling slightly in powerful acids, possessing an unknown spectrum, wasting away in air and attacking silicon compounds with mutual destruction as a result, it presented no identifying features whatsoever, and at the end of the tests the college scientists were forced to own that they could not place it. It was nothing of this earth but a piece of the great outside, and as such dowered with outside properties and obedient to outside laws. That night there was a thunderstorm, and when the professors went out to Names the next day, they met with a bitter disappointment— The stone, magnetic as it had been, must have had some peculiar electrical property, for it had drawn the lightning, as Nahum said, with a singular persistence. Six times within an hour the farmer saw the lightning strike the furrow in the front yard, and when the storm was over nothing remained but a ragged pit by the ancient well-sweep, half-choked with caved-in earth. Digging had borne no fruit, and the scientists verified the fact of the utter vanishment. The failure was total, so that nothing was left to do but go back to the laboratory and test again the disappearing fragment left carefully cased in lead. That fragment lasted a week, at the end of which nothing of value had been learned of it. When it had gone, no residue was left behind, and in time the professors felt scarcely sure they had indeed seen with waking eyes that cryptic vestige of the fathomless gulfs outside that lone, weird message from other universes and other realms of matter, force, and entity. As was natural, the Arkham Papers made much of the incident with its collegiate sponsoring, and sent reporters to talk with Nahum Gardner and his family. At least one Boston Daily also sent a scribe, and Nahum quickly became a kind of local celebrity. He was a lean, genial person of about fifty, living with his wife and three sons on the pleasant farmstead in the valley. He and Amy exchanged visits frequently, as did their wives, and Amy had nothing but praise for him after all these years. He seemed slightly proud of the notice his place had attracted, and talked often of the meteorite in the succeeding weeks. That July and August were hot, and Nahum worked hard at his haying in the ten-acre pasture across Chapman's Brook, his rattling wain wearing deep ruts in the shadowy lanes between. The labour tired him more than it had in other years, and he felt that age was beginning to tell on him. Then fell the time of fruit and harvest, the pears and apples slowly ripened, and Nahum vowed that his orchards were prospering as never before. The fruit was growing to phenomenal size and unwanted gloss, and in such abundance that extra barrels were ordered to handle the future crop. But with the ripening came sore disappointment, for of all that gorgeous array of specious lusciousness not one single jot was fit to eat. Into the fine flavour of the pears and apples had crept a stealthy bitterness and sickishness, so that even the smallest bites induced a lasting disgust. It was the same with the melons and tomatoes, and Nahum sadly saw that his entire crop was lost. Quick to connect events, he declared that the meteorite had poisoned the soil, and thanked heaven that most of the other crops were in the upland lot along the road. Winter came early, and was very cold. Amy saw Nahum less often than usual, and observed that he had begun to look worried. The rest of his family, too, seemed to have grown taciturn, and were far from steady in their church-going or their attendance at the various social events of the countryside. For this reserve or melancholy no cause could be found, though all the household confessed now and then to poorer health and a feeling of vague disquiet. Nahum himself gave the most definite statement of any one when he said he was disturbed about certain footprints in the snow. They were the usual winter prints of red squirrels, white rabbits, and foxes, but the brooding farmer professed to see something not quite right about their nature and arrangement. He was never specific— but appeared to think that they were not as characteristic of the anatomy and habits of squirrels and rabbits and foxes as they ought to be. Amy listened without interest to this talk until one night when he drove past Nahum's house in his sleigh on the way back from Clark's Corners. There had been a moon, and a rabbit had run across the road, and the leaps of that rabbit were longer than either Amy or his horse liked. The latter, indeed, had almost run away when brought up by a firm rein. Thereafter, Amy gave Nahum's tales more respect, and wondered why the gardener dogs seemed so cowed and quivering every morning. They had it developed, nearly lost the spirit to bark. In February, the MacGregor boys from Meadow Hill were out shooting woodchucks, and not far from the gardener place bagged a very peculiar specimen. The proportions of its body seemed slightly altered in a queer way impossible to describe, while its face had taken on an expression which no one ever saw in a woodchuck before. The boys were genuinely frightened and threw the thing away at once, so that only their grotesque tales of it ever reached the people of the countryside. But the shying of horses near Nahum's house had now become an acknowledged thing, and all the basis for a cycle of whispered legend were fast taking form. People vowed that the snow melted faster around Nams than it did anywhere else, and early in March there was an awed discussion in Potter's General Store at Clark's Corners. Stephen Rice had driven past gardeners in the morning, and had noticed the skunk cabbages coming up through the mud by the woods across the road. Never were things of such size seen before, and they held strange colours that could not be put into any words. Their shapes were monstrous, and the horse had snorted at an odour which struck Stephen as wholly unprecedented. That afternoon several persons drove past to see the abnormal growth, and all agreed that plants of that kind ought never to sprout in a healthy world. The bad fruit of the fall before was freely mentioned, and it went from mouth to mouth that there was a poison in Nahum's ground. Of course it was the meteorite, and remembering how strange the men from the college had found that stone to be, several farmers spoke about the matter to them. One day they paid Nahum a visit— but having no love of wild tales and folklore were very conservative in what they inferred. The plants were certainly odd, but all skunk cabbages are more or less odd in shape and hue. Perhaps some mineral element from the stone had entered the soil, but it would soon be washed away. And as for the footprints and frightened horses, of course this was mere country talk, which such a phenomenon as the Aerolite would be certain to start. There was really nothing for serious men to do in cases of wild gossip, for superstitious rustics will say and believe anything. And so, all through the strange days, the professors stayed away in contempt. Only one of them, when given two vials of dust for analysis in a police job over a year and a half later, recalled that the queer colour of that skunk cabbage had been very like one of the anomalous bands of light shown by the meteor fragment in the college spectroscope, and like the brittle globule found embedded in the stone from the abyss. The samples in this analysis case gave the same odd bands at first, though later they lost the property. The trees budded prematurely around Nahum's, and at night they swayed ominously in the wind. Nahum's second son Thaddeus, a lad of fifteen, swore that they swayed also when there was no wind, but even the gossips would not credit this. Certainly, however, restlessness was in the air. The entire Gardener family developed the habit of stealthy listening, though not for any sound which they could consciously name. The listening was indeed rather a product of moments when consciousness seemed half to slip away. Unfortunately such moments increased week by week, till it became common speech that something was wrong with all Nahum's folks. When the early saxifrage came out it had another strange colour, not quite like that of the skunk cabbage, but plainly related and equally unknown to anyone who saw it. Nahum took some blossoms to Arkham and showed them to the editor of the Gazette, but that dignitary did no more than write a humorous article about them, in which the dark fears of rustics were held up to polite ridicule. It was a mistake of Nahum's to tell a stolid city man about the way the great, overgrown, morning-cloak butterflies behaved in connection with these saxifrages. And here ends the first part of the story. Thank you for listening. Please tune in again next time for part two of The Colour Out of Space.